You could open with your, in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 2, please. Mark chapter 2. We continue to study this gospel. This morning we're going to look at a well-known story. A story that sometimes gets presented because of an incredible compassion shown by someone's friends, and that's certainly a way to look at this story. But we're going to look at another element to it. So read with me the first few verses of Mark chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof over where he was. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the mat where the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning. Use your spirit to convict us that prior to being regenerated, your spirit working in our hearts, taking our our heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, every one of us was like a paralytic, a paralytic that was unable to come to you and a paralytic that was out of animus and out of enmity asking you to stay away. But because of your great love and your great compassion and your great grace and your forgiveness, you reached down and you picked us up, gave us a new heart, gave us a new affections, gave us legs to walk, gave us arms to use, and gave us mouths and minds to praise you. So be glorified this morning as we continue to turn to your word. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. If you are currently in physical pain, this isn't going to be a very fun analogy, but bear with me. Think about a time you were hurt in the past. You had a, a cut, you sprained an ankle. You might be able to remember that. It might make you wince initially to think about the, that broken bone or even that cut. I mean, particularly if it was like a paper cut, something really nagging, and it makes, might set your teeth on edge to think about that. But it's very quick, for, and I think that the Lord made us this way, for those sensations to kind of go away. And we, we know it was bad. We know it hurt but we also really can't tangibly touch it. Now, this, again, doesn't work if you're physically in pain, but this is an amazing thing about the way that we are made, about how we are body and soul, but at the same time, we are able to kind of separate from that pain we feel in our body after time passes. And it inevitably leads quarterbacks to go out on the field after they just couldn't get up five plays ago. It causes people who ride mountain bikes down hilly, rocky trails to get right back up after they were just in the hospital a couple of days ago. It's what causes women to have more than one child, I assume. 
But this is something that we, we have this very quick uh, way to forget our physical pain. It's not that way with emotional pain, though. Think about sometime you were embarrassed. And this is bad because I think that this actually could be a huge distraction for the remainder of the service. Think about a time you were embarrassed. Think about a time you did something, you said something. The waitress says, have a nice meal, and you say, you too. When you ask that woman, when is the baby due? Ooh, better hope you, that she has a good sense of humor. Or worse than that, when it's not just embarrassment, when it's guilt. You knew you shouldn't do something, you did that thing, and you were caught. That look of disappointment. That thing that, as parents, we might say, and the things that, as children, we hated hearing, I'm not upset, I'm just disappointed. And how those words, that emotion, that feeling, it hurts us. It sticks with us. It, may be, it might be necessary, it might be good. Having that feeling of shame might be important. It might be the deterrence from doing the bad thing again. But still, having that shame having that embarrassment, having that awkwardness, it paralyzes us to the point where out of a room this size, there is inevitably somebody who is going to go through the entire service and they're not going to be completely recovered from me asking you to think about that time when you were embarrassed. This is what happens when there's shame. This is what happens when there is guilt. It paralyzes us. Well, there's a greater guilt and a greater shame than anything we can do in a social situation. There's a greater guilt and a greater shame than any sort of awkward moment or, or, or uh, thing, word that we say could produce. And of course, that is the great shame and the great guilt that exists between us and a good, righteous, holy, perfect God. And this text talks about that. Does it talk about the determination of a group of friends to help their paralyzed friend? Absolutely. Does it talk about the miraculous works that Christ can perform? Absolutely. But as we talked about last week, Jesus' miracles primarily serve as a conduit or a channel by which people then and which people today can hear and understand his teaching and appreciate the fact that there is authority underneath it and behind it. So one more time, miracles both for the audience there that day and for us today and everyone in between, miracles are meant not to impress simply for the sake of impressing, but they are meant to be signposts and guarantees of Jesus' teaching and the authority that undergirds his teaching. And so we see that in this text and how that actually comes out even with this great and amazing miracle. So look at verses 1 through 5 one more time. And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. This is the very first thing that we, we see in this setting. What, why are people gathered? People are gathered, and what is Jesus doing? He's healing. He's exercising demons. He's doing miracles, but his primary purpose is teaching. This is the setting. The setting of virtually every miracle that we see in John, excuse me, in Mark, is Jesus teaching. 
He is bringing the word, and then he is bringing a supernatural, tangible change in the world around people, either in their bodies or in their spirits, or ultimately in the things that they're eating and drinking or experiencing environmentally. He brings those things in to draw attention to the word. Now, it's interesting. What is Jesus teaching? Is he teaching from the Gospel of Mark? Well, absolutely not. Is he teaching one of Paul's letters? No. Paul's still a rambunctious little rabbinical snot at this point in the, in the timeline. What is Jesus teaching? Jesus is teaching the Old Testament. Once more, I, this is a point that I want to belabor to the point where we are tired of hearing this. Jesus is bringing forth the law, the prophets, and the writings. This is what Jesus is teaching. He's explaining things, these things to sheep that have been without shepherds because their shepherds, as Ezekiel wrote hundreds of years ago, are wicked shepherds who are getting fat off their sheep and not feeding them. So Jesus is doing that very thing in this wonderful prophetic line that he is now completing of bringing to bear the truth of God's word. He's speaking the word to them. And then it says, and they came, they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof over where he was. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the mat where the paralytic was lying. Now, notice what they did. They cut a hole in the roof. What did this look like? This is always worth talking about because it's exciting. These buildings, these, these domiciles were, were basically brick walls with thatched roof. And then to keep the bugs and the, the rain and stuff out, that thatch had a plaster or a mud over it that would get hard to the point where you could go up and you could sit on it. This was the place you could get cool in the, the middle of the uh, Israel uh, summers. And what did they do? Somebody who had spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort to thatch and mud this they now have cut a hole in so they could lower their friends down. Mudding drywall is my least favorite thing. So I would have gladly they taken out a window or done something else to get their friend in, but apparently their devotion and their determination was so strong. And why did they do this? They believed who Jesus was. They knew who Jesus was. They... they they believed that these drastic measures would be rewarded, these drastic efforts would come to fruition because of Jesus, who Jesus was. This is the reputation that he has already built. This is this fast-paced nature of the Gospel of Mark that we've already begun to understand and see. We are a chapter and four verses in, in the reputation for Jesus is that he does things that no one else can do. So people are willing, because of their faith, because of their, their appreciation for who he is, they are willing to do things that no one else would do. These four men wanted one thing. They wanted one thing. They wanted their friend to be healed. And so they were, they were willing to carry him on a, a, a beer, on a, uh, on a gurney, if you will, um, up, I assume it's on a gurney. It doesn't say that, does it? Maybe they had him like one arm each and one leg each, I don't know. But I assume he was on a gurney. And they carry him up, and they cut him through the roof. And the first thing that Jesus gives them is not a healing. Notice that. Verse 5, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, child, your sins are forgiven. 
Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith. What was their faith in? Think about this for a moment. Was their faith in, as, as Joe articulated well in the, in the catechism question this morning, was their faith in the perfect God-man, the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, that he had come, that he was going to die, that he was going to be buried, that he was going to rise again, and that he was going to ascend to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father? Did they believe in the substitutionary penal atonement? Did they believe in that? Did they have this full-orbed Christology like we have 2,000 years later with the full revelation of Scripture? What did they believe? These are important questions to ask, and these are important questions to answer. When we talk about their faith, it can't be the same in, in particulars as our faith because the things that we believe are built off of events and teachings that come after this. So what did they believe? They believed in Jesus. They believed in Jesus. And so if you were to take everything that I said a moment ago about the atonement, about Jesus' work, about all his life, about who he is, and you were to boil it down and you were to explain it to a three-year-old or a five-year-old, a seven-year-old or a 75-year-old that had never heard the gospel before, what would you start with? Jesus. That's who they believed in. They believed in a man who was doing things that no one had done, and I think it bears mentioning that they were believing in a man who was saying things that had never been said. And he was saying things that had never been said and doing them with an authority that was being brought to bear by the miracles that he was performing. Jesus saw their faith. And again, what he does is to authenticate his message. He doesn't heal. He, he forgives their sins. Jesus forgives sins. This is huge. This is a big deal. This might sound simple because we are so used to hearing this. We're so used to telling this to our children. But Jesus forgives sins. Now, he forgives. And I think it's worth mentioning here. Is, his, is the paralytic's paralysis tied to his sin. Think about this. this these are, I'm asking you questions. They're rhetorical questions. I appreciate that no one's answering them. Is the paralytic's paralysis tied to his sin? Is your illness, is your frailty tied to your sin? So actually, it's interesting there. Now you see the kind of the, the dividing line. If I say your illness, is it tied to your sin? You might say, well, no. But then I would say, is your frailty tied to your sin? And answer there is a resolute yes. Our frailty, our frailty as physical beings, beings that begin this downward slope of physical being at like, I don't know, 40 maybe? 45? Give me hope, people. I don't know, 17, 18? We begin this downward slide of, of our physical trajectory. And what's the cause of that? Is it a lack of exercise? Is it a poor diet? No, ultimately, the cause of our physical frailty is sin, the sin of Adam, but the sin that we willfully participate in, that we willfully are a part of. John Calvin, in, in, in commenting on this passage, says, when the feeling of afflictions reminds us of our sins, 
Let us first of all be careful to obtain pardon that when God is reconciled to us, he may withdraw his hand from punishing. And because that's, that's an interesting sentiment to, to lay hold of, because what it says is that when we are in our afflictions, we need to have an understanding that whether our, our physical condition is the direct result of our sin or an indirect, indirect result of our sin, that sin is ultimately tied to it. There is not some sort of cosmic karma that God utilizes such that every time you do something wrong, you are going to be paid back sometime in the next 48 hours. Where if you had a little sin, your cold is going to be a sniffle. If you have a big sin, you're going to have to go on medication. And if you really mess up, the hospitalization is inevitably coming. Sometimes we think that way, but there's, that is certainly not the situation that is borne out in Scripture or even in our experience. But what we can't do is go to the opposite extreme and say that what I do has no bearing on my physical situation, certainly on my spiritual situation. There is always going to be a reminder of the fact that sin is the ultimate root and cause of our physical, emotional, and spiritual problems. And so is this man's paralysis a result of his sin? Yes and no. No, in the sense that as Jesus talks about in the Gospel of John when he addresses the man born blind and the people say, is this man's blindness the result of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, basically, the, a bunch of people who just got killed in an accident the next town over, were they any worse than you guys? So that is not the way that we address this. We don't have this, this uh, erroneous mentality that if someone is sick or if someone gets hurt or if someone suffers financial ruin or if someone has a problem in their life, that it was the, because they were harboring some unconfessed sin. But we also can't go to the opposite extreme and say that that might not be a part of it. This is a difficult tension to walk. This is a difficult thing to, 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 to grasp. And it's important that we do so slowly and graciously and with a conscientiousness that reflects a shepherding heart, a, a, a pastoral heart, if you will, that that's not what you lead with. If you go to visit somebody in the hospital, if you go to someone's bedside in, their, in the waning moments of their life, you don't grab their hand and gently caress it and say, what'd you do to deserve this? As miserable as that sounds, that would be the ultimate result of, of kind of taking this to the wrong extreme. It's worth pointing out because we ought to be thinking of this when a Jesus seal sees a sick person and he forgives their sins. This doesn't mean that there's necessarily a tight link, but it also shows that these things are not completely separate. This doesn't show that there's a tight link, but it also shows that these things are not completely separate. Of course, we are all subject to the sins of this world, a fallen world, and the sins of others around us. But what does Jesus do? He forgives this man's sin. This is a big deal. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah says, comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has been fulfilled, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all her sins. Her iniquity has been removed. The removal of sins, as we'll see here in a moment, is something that is the prerogative of God. Jesus in, in forgiving this man's sin, 
is forgiving him and comforting him. Forgiveness brings about great comfort. As I mentioned earlier, if you did something dumb and you had an injury doing it and it wasn't life-threatening, but that thing that you did caused a problem with you and another person, would you rather your injury get better right away or that person say, it's okay, don't worry about it? What makes it worse? Last night I was watching college football and a a young man made a very dumb play, but he's 19, so we should probably forgive him pretty easily for that. And he got hurt, and he rolled around in pain, and then you realize very quickly, it wasn't so much the physical pain that he was dealing with in that moment. It was the bad play and feeling bad that he let his team and the thousands of people around him down, and that's why he was rolling around. It wasn't his ankle, it was his heart. And we know that what would you rather have in that moment? A limp? Or would you rather have all of those people say, it's okay, get up, we still love you. There's a, a tether, there's a tie. The comfort and the for, it, it, it comes with forgiveness is something that God offers. And so for this man, again, the story's not over, but to have the peace of being forgiven by God the peace of the forgiveness that Jesus offers, that is a legitimate offering. That is a legitimate blessing. That is legitimately something that Jesus is giving this man while he is still unable to move his extremities. Jesus forgives sin, and he brings comfort when he does so. But continuing on, we now see a conflict it says, but some of the scribes, in verse 6, were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or, everyone knows only God forgives sins. Because did this man do something to Jesus and that's why he's paralyzed? Absolutely not. We, there's, there's no reason that should enter our minds. So, where does Jesus have the authority to forgive this person's sins? Everyone knows only God forgives sins. I think, firstly, it's important to acknowledge that what does forgiveness mean? What does it mean to forgive? When's the last time you forgave someone? And do you take it seriously? Or you say, don't worry about it, no problem. It's okay. Hey, we all make mistakes. When was the last time you genuinely had to forgive somebody? When you had to make a conscious decision in your heart to say, this thing that they have done that is wrong, that they deserve my anger for, they deserve consequence for, I am going to remove any holding that I have against them. I'm going to remove in my heart, in my mind, the desire to pour out wrath and vengeance on them for what they have said or what they have done against me. Forgiveness is taking away what you hold over someone or what you're holding in yourself towards someone because of a wrong that they've committed. It is removing the slate. It is taking the debt that they are now in because of this cost that they have incurred, and it is wiping that clean. And we may do that on earth, but as we talked about in, in our moment of confession earlier, 
any sin that we commit may very well be towards our brother and sister, our brother and sister in Christ, or our neighbor. But, as David said, after he was caught by the prophet Nathan in his sin with Bathsheba, with killing Uriah the Hittite, he says, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Against you, you only, I have sinned. David, in his grief, shows great clarity, shows a theological candor when he says this, because certainly he sinned against Uriah the Hittite. I mean, he's dead. He, he certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He certainly sinned against his family, against Bathsheba's family, against Israel. David sinned in so many ways. But David, because he was a man after God's own heart, sees right to the point and acknowledges that the primary sin was not earthly. The primary sin was doing something that violated the perfect law of a perfect God. David asks for forgiveness from God. Because although he could be forgiven by Uriah's family, although he could be forgiven by Bathsheba's family, although he could be be forgiven by his family, although all of Israel could gather together corporately around David's house in Israel and say, we forgive you, he acknowledges that his sin is still standing between himself and his God. And all of that other forgiveness is nothing if there's no forgiveness between him and God. God says, church, in Isaiah again, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Church, this is so essential to understand that forgiveness from God is a real thing. It is not a simple step that you take when you are saying a prayer, repeating words after someone so that you can be saved. Forgiveness is a real thing. Forgiveness is that thing that, going back once again to the catechism, and as Joe pointed out, the thing that triggers our assurance. So often people feel far from God because they are hanging on to a guilt And hanging on to that guilt can be for one of two reasons. One is because they truly have not received forgiveness. Because maybe they repeated a prayer, or maybe they grew up in church, or maybe they think that they've done all the right things, but really they have not laid hold of the promises that God has offered to them. That's one. And that's a legitimate situation that we need to constantly be aware of and cognizant of that no matter how much exposure, no match, that there's no salvation by osmosis. That proximity to a Bible, proximity to the music like this, proximity to preaching from God's word doesn't necessarily save one. It is God's divine work in his spirit drawing people to himself. That's what brings about salvation. And so if there's a lack of assurance, if there's still a sensation of guilt before a holy God, that may very well be a reason. But it's something that God offers freely, turning from sin, receiving forgiveness as we move towards faith. So that's one reason why there there might be that guilt that still lingers. 
even when God promises, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The other reason is that we don't appreciate that forgiveness that we receive. We don't think about it, maybe because we're not necessarily a forgiving person ourselves. There's so much that Jesus says later and that we'll, we'll talk about in the coming weeks and months about the fact that we don't necessarily receive forgiveness unless we're forgiving people. If we don't know how to forgive, it's maybe because we don't understand how we've been forgiven. Now, hear me. This is not me saying that if you are slow to forgive, that you are not saved. That's not what's being said at all. It's that sometimes we are slow to forgive because we don't really understand forgiveness. We have not laid hold of the depth of the forgiveness that is offered. Because our knowledge and our comprehension of forgiveness might be very mundane, very earthly, the kind of forgiveness that is very conditional, the kind of forgiveness that says you have to say this thing in a particular order in a right way, and then you can't mess up anytime soon, otherwise I'm going to rescind that forgiveness from you. That's a very earthly way of forgiving. You can go into any bookstore today, bookstores, kids are like Amazon that you can walk into, but that's neither here nor there. You can go into any bookstore today, and there's books that give terrible examples of forgiveness, about, about how, how you need to remove the toxic people from your life, about how you need to, to, to keep people at arm's distance, about how you need to uh, set up boundaries about who you can and who you can't forgive. Boundaries are good. Keeping people at arm's length may be, very well be necessary, but that has nothing to do with forgiveness, church. If God waited to forgive us until we were perfect and able to be in close proximity with him, every one of us would still be strangers, foreigners, and aliens to him because none of us are perfect. He forgives us where we are, and through that, he draws us closer to himself. So I would maintain once more that we might not appreciate forgiveness because we, we just haven't thought about it. We haven't grasped it. We haven't realized what it means when God says, I will not remember your sins. We see another divine prerogative of Jesus here. When in verse 8, continues, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, says to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? What Jesus is doing and what Mark is communicating to us is showing the divine prerogative of Jesus, showing the divine authority of Jesus. Even before this man gets up off of the gurney, Jesus forgives sins. This is something that is only reserved for God. What does it say again in Isaiah 43? This is 43.25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. Jesus does that. Jesus hears and, and, and sees what's in their heart. That's another divine prerogative. He knows man's heart. It says in Jeremiah, I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the inmost being. Even before this man gets up off of the floor, as he still has the straw and the mud on his clothing from being let down through the roof, Jesus gives two implicit, explicit claims to divinity. Why do I say implicit, explicit? He doesn't say, I am Yahweh. But what he does is he does the things that only the Lord does. He does two of them. He forgives sins, and he responds to people from what is only in their hearts. And so Jesus 
forgives sin. Everyone knows only God forgives sin. And Jesus proves that he is God. Jesus proves he is God. His answer is wonderful. He, say, he, he asked them a question, and then he, and, uh, he asked them a, a follow-up question before they can even answer. It says, in the middle of verse 8, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your mat and walk? What a wonderful question. He's really putting the burden of proof on these guys. He's saying, what's easier, to forgive sins, to tell someone, I forgive you, or to have them stand up and walk? We could try that now. We could try to heal someone real quick, and the Lord might make me look like a fool and actually do that. He certainly would be able to do both of those things. What's easier? Is it easier to forgive someone, or is it easier to heal them? Is it easier to forgive someone, or is it, is, it, is it easier to make the pain from a hangnail go away? Is it easier to forgive someone, or is it easier to make their smallest injury get better? And the answer is, for us, it's easier to forgive them. But here's a paralyzed man that Jesus already has forgiven. And inevitably, the scribes probably think that they've got Jesus stuck. But it's clear that what he's about to do is not so that they feel like fools because they can't heal people. It's clear that what he's about to do and what he says in verse 10 is to authenticate the forgiveness. It's clear that what he says in verse 10 is to authenticate what he's been saying in verse 2, speaking the word to them. Because what he says in verse 10 is, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your mat, and go to your home. You know, church, healing is a foretaste of the promised result of those who have faith. Physical healing is a foretaste for the promise of those who have faith. The paralysis the physical paralysis, is an extreme example of the repercussions and the results of being in a fallen world. And so for us, for, for, for our minds, and, and when, when we have a funeral service, or when we're praying for someone who's sick, or when we're doing something like that, it's a very quick and easy, tangible way for us to align now versus then, present versus future, the fallen creation versus new creation, to say they are no longer in any pain. They are now not only in a wheelchair, they are running with Jesus. And those things may seem trite when we're not in that moment, but I think they actually reflect a proper understanding of really what that first step is in, an, in the new creation. Because so much of what we see of Jesus' ministry, these healings, Everyone to a man still died. Lazarus had the amazing, terrible, wonderful, I'm not sure, experience of dying twice. Mary and Martha had to do two funerals for Lazarus. But what did these things show? In a temporary, small way, the man who was paralyzed, the man who could not see, the woman who had a discharge, all of these people 
they still had to suffer. But what Jesus was showing them was that what I'm telling you, this is the kind of stuff that's going to be normal. This stuff being taken away, these things being better, that pain that you're experiencing right now being gone, that is going to be part and parcel of the new creation. But the doorway into the new creation is not a spine that works better. It's not eyes that can see, ears that can hear, tongue that can speak. The doorway to that new creation is being forgiven and being found in Christ. Healing is a foretaste of the promised result of those who have faith. And that is given by the one who has authority. Notice what Jesus says in verse 10, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he heals them. The Son of Man has authority. He has the authority of God on earth. The, the title Son of Man, which we'll talk about here in the next couple of weeks, it, we, we see it most, most, most clearly as it relates to Christ, as it relates to the Messiah, the anointed one in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him, and to him, talking to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Jesus was given dominion, and he's exerting his dominion in a small way, with all of the fallen creation around him, he touches this one man and he takes away his paralysis. He proves that he is God. He proves that he is the son of man from Daniel chapter 7. He proves that he can forgive sins. He proves that he is God. So listen to his teaching. It says in verse 12, And he got up immediately and picked up the mat and went out before everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. That's a way you can, I mean, this is a bit of an aside. This is not some great doxology. They, they have not sat down to write books of poetry. They did not get out the Psalter and start singing psalms in, in, in four-part harmonies. We have never seen anything like this. But they're saying it in a heart of faith towards God. They are stupefied. They are amazed. They are unable to grasp what they've seen, but they know that this is coming directly from God. Mark says they were amazed and were glorifying God. You can glorify God by saying, I have no clue what's going on. Because in your heart, it's directed towards God. And he went out again by the seashore, and the entire crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Notice how this passage starts, Jesus teaching. Notice how this passage ends, Jesus teaching. The point of this miracle, the point of this paralyzed man getting up and walk, the, the point of him saying what he said to the scribes and Pharisees was to prove he is God. So listen to his teaching. Well, church, I think it it's, bears a few minutes as we close to talk about forgiveness. Because again, Joe bringing up assurance is just providential and good because this is one of the things that we just don't talk enough about just in evangelicalism, in, in, in the church. Assurance is what so many people struggle with, and I think it's a, a, a kind of a, a, a holdover from this influence into the church that says, basically, you've, got, you've, you've saved yourself, that you made a decision, that you did a thing, that you had enough faith that you got yourself into the church, you got yourself into faith, that you got yourself into the kingdom. So inevitably you think, well, I'm pretty crummy. You ought to think that, right? I'm pretty crummy. 
And so if it was on me to get into this, then I'm not 100% sure I'm in this. But if we understand what Scripture says and understand what Christ has done, then that's where we can find our assurance. How are we forgiven? First and foremost, we are forgiven because of the cross. This is what actually separates us from, from the paralytic man. We are forgiven and we can look back on the cross. In Matthew 26, it says, and this is something we say virtually every Sunday in one shape, way, shape, or form, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. The, 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 the wine that we're about to consume in a minute represents true blood that actually forgave. This is a picture of the blood that forgave. The, the blood of the bulls and the goats, as it says in, in Hebrews, that were, were prescribed all through the Levitical Code in the Pentateuch, those were pictures of the blood that would actually save. But Christ's blood spilled on the cross actually forgave. You asking for forgiveness didn't forgive. It is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit applies that forgiveness when the Holy Spirit works in your, in your life at that moment of salvation. But the blood of Jesus is what forgives you. It is what justifies you. This is purposeful forgiveness. Jesus, in, in, in holding up that glass of wine, anticipating his blood from that same hand dripping out in a matter of hours, acknowledged that this blood will forgive. Not potentially forgive, not maybe forgive, will forgive. The cross is how we're forgiven. Secondly, God's grace is how we're forgiven. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgression according to the riches of his grace. So here we, we, we see that it's not because we figure out the cross, that we read the Bible well enough and we believed hard enough such that we are now saved. It is through his blood according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. It's the forgiveness of our transgressions. When, one of the things I think is worth noting is that although God forgives us of our transgressions, we still in this life have to work it all out. So when we talk about justification, we ought not use that, that cute little saying, it's just as if I've never sinned. Well, Judicially, yes, it's struck from the record, but God is still working on you. Sanctification actually behooves us understanding that the sins that we committed and are still committing are something that God is working on. So when we are forgiven, God graciously removes those things from a debt standpoint, but he still works with us through those things. So we are forgiven because of the cross. We are forgiven by God's grace. We're forgiven through the gift of faith. Acts chapter 10, as Peter preaches, says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. It's accomplished on the cross, as we said. It's applied when we believe. Church, every one of us was paralyzed by guilt. And every one of us was lifted up by Jesus. We might not be physically paralyzed, but spiritually we were paralyzed. Unable. Dead men, unable to respond. Paralytics, unable to walk. But Christ, because of the cross, because of God's grace, because of giving us the gift of faith, we've been lifted up. 
And hear this. That forgiveness is total. If you struggle with guilt, first of all, confess that guilt. This is why we have this opportunity here on Sundays. If this is not a daily pattern in your life, hopefully we're infusing a bit of a, of a regimen of confession and receiving forgiveness and receiving assurance on a weekly basis. But, but, but bring these things before him because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that forgiveness, as it says in Psalm 103, is that he has not dealt with us according to our sins. Thank God. And he has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. Praise the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. So great is his covenant love towards those who fear him. He has already extended himself, condescended to us to draw us near. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you struggle with guilt, know that the God who covenanted with with Abraham, the God who had a covenant renewal ceremony and a new covenant with his son has removed our transgressions from us as far as from the east is from the west. If you can find the point where those, those two uh, compass directions touch, you can have an argument for the limit of God's grace. This is true forgiveness. It doesn't mean that we don't, we don't humbly bow before God confessing our sins. It's that we acknowledge instantaneously that there's forgiveness that is there. And so, church, we adore him for being a forgiving God. We confess that we don't deserve forgiveness. We thank him for the unmerited forgiveness he gives us. And we ask to be forgiving people as we have been forgiven. You might say, you know, I need some practical tips on how to forgive my friends. I need some practical tips on how to forgive my neighbor, how to forgive my parents, how to forgive people. And those will come. We'll inevitably get to sermons that talk about that. But the base that we need, the foundation that we need, the framework that we need, the blueprint that we need for understanding how to forgive others is to understand how we have been forgiven. And that's what this text is talking about. A forgiveness that raises us up from the mat of not just our paralysis, but our death and draws us near to a good, perfect, and holy God. That's the kind of forgiveness we need to understand so that we can then glorify God and that we can glorify him by forgiving others. Church, as we come to the table this morning, consider this forgiveness. Consider that the blood poured out, the blood that, that, that Christ was, was symbolizing as he was holding up wine 2,000 years ago at an upper room in Jerusalem is the same wine that you're going to be picking up this morning. And that it is a picture of the real blood that was poured out for the real forgiveness of your real, ugly, dirty sins. And so that real, ugly dirtiness may still have lingering effects on you today, but it has been washed clean. Thus, you are worthy to partake of the supper that Jesus invites you to come to. But that doesn't mean that you don't have an opportunity to, to show that affection and show that conviction, and show an appreciation for that forgiveness. And so I would invite you and encourage you, as you come to receive this, as, as John comes and plays this song, that you will, will rest firmly on the perfect forgiveness offered by a perfect Savior. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come to you and we come to your table, graciously accepting this invitation, knowing that it was extended by your Son, 
for all those who believe. We thank you that we don't have to eat uh, a cracker and drink some wine from the grocery store to receive for forgiveness, but that was granted to us on the cross that was made real to us at the moment that your spirit changed us. And now we can commemorate and we can live in and we can anticipate the fullness of that reconciliation as we take the supper. Be glorified as we do so. Allow us to bask in the glory of your forgiveness. In the name of your son we pray. Amen.